the reality is that we are coming from a space of one size fits most to one size fits one. And it's going to be fascinating to see that unravel because we're going to learn so much in the process. Much easier to say, look, I want to work on my well-being. Even if ultimately what you're doing is a more powerful, more robust thing, the mindset of what you're doing can make something more appealing. One of the things that digital technology is going to do when it comes to control is it helps people to understand the behavior of their condition. And you'll be able to, it'll visualize or it'll map triggers to symptoms. The model of seeing a therapist one-on-one -on -one just because of that supply-demand mismatch isn't going to work. And I think that's really where technology comes in. Technology really makes it viable to create more accessible care on a wider scale. Hello and welcome to Shine, a podcast by Star. And in this episode, we discuss the intersection between mental health and technology. Now, to illuminate this topic, we're joined by Star's very own expert, Chris Scales. He's the director of Strategy Design. We're also joined by Megan Zwieg, the COO of Rock Health and Investor in the Space, Acacia Parks, the Chief Science Officer at Happify Health, and Meta Dyberg, who is the founder and CEO of MyMe. And I really enjoyed this episode because I don't have that much of a background in understanding mental health or understanding how technology can apply to that. And this really opened my eyes to the power or the impact that technology is going to have on the world of mental health. We actually even broaden the discussion slightly to look at how technology is going to revolutionize healthcare in general. So if you are looking to have your eyes open about how technology is going to impact the way uh, we treat mental health, then I am very confident that you're really going to enjoy this episode. Let's jump in. And the first voice you'll hear will be that of Chris Scales. Hey, Tom. Thanks very much for having me on this podcast. Real pleasure to be here. Uh, my name is Chris Scales. I'm the Director of Product Strategy and Insight in STARS Global Health and Wellness Practice. And well, my background is as a designer. I've been uh, practicing product strategy, innovation, and design for the last 20 years. Um, since joining STAR, I've been focusing very much in the digital health space. Uh, we've been doing a lot of work in telehealth and also in digital therapeutics, and I'm really looking forward to participating in this conversation. Hi, my name is Acacia Parks. I'm the Chief Science Officer at Habify Health, which is a digital therapeutics company that brings research-based behavior change strategies to large businesses, health plans, and consumers through a variety of different channels and mechanisms. Our focus is on uh, kind of mental health and all of the chronic diseases that interface with mental health, where mental health might be uh, kind of a barrier to benefiting from treatment. And my primary of areas of strength are in kind of research strategy and the intersection of research and regulatory strategy in, uh, in getting all of these things out to the general public. I'm happy to be here. Hi, my name is Meta Dyberg. I'm the founder and CEO of MyMe, a digital care program that empowers those who suffer from autoimmune diseases to reclaim their health. We are a direct-to-consumer business with a payer arm. And I full disclaimer, I'm an economist, not a doctor. Uh, this started out as a personal journey. Uh, after 20 years of being sick, I was able to normalize my blood work, reverse all my symptoms, and have been drug and symptom-free for nine years. It's good to be here. Everyone, I'm Megan Swig, Chief Operating Officer at Rock Health. We are early-stage investors in digital health companies, and we are also advisors to healthcare enterprises that are thinking about 
integrating digital health technologies into their business. We're investors in chronic disease management platforms that integrate mental health. We're also investors in companies that are explicitly tackling a mental health condition for a particular population. And I think another perspective we bring to the table is our research and thought leadership. So we're constantly tracking venture funding and exits so can kind of give that broad brush view of what's going on in the mental health space and how that compares to the larger digital health sector. And just really excited to be here and learn from you all. Okay, so to give some context, I am like a podcast addict. And I spend a lot of time listening to podcasts, sometimes technical podcasts. And I sometimes find myself being 10 minutes into the interview and I don't really understand what we're actually discussing. So what I want to do here with the first question is make this very real for someone who is not a, like intimately understanding of mental health and technology. So my first question is, can one of you please share one or two examples of how uh, products or technologies are addressing real mental health challenges right now? And I may actually go straight either to, either to Meta or, or Acacia, because I think you guys should be able to help here. I think, and actually, this is one of the things that I'm uh, really passionate about is this idea of kind of cross-cutting um, types of approaches to improving the mental health of an entire population. And you can see that in where digital therapeutics is having its impact because, uh, you know, on one side of the spectrum, you see prescription digital therapeutics targeting, you know, diagnosed mental illnesses. And, and this is a process that's regulated by the FDA in a pretty significant way. But then you also see this kind of, there's a spectrum down to kind of other ways to tackle mental health issues as well, like kind of earlier on when they're less severe. And so some of these, uh, you know, Happify has a B2B arm where we're working with employers and health plans and it's much more population focused. It's not identifying a person who needs it and prescribing it. It's, it's much more broad strokes and almost like it could be wellness all the way into kind of reducing risk before mental disorder happens. So I see stuff happening all across that spectrum from wellness to prescription, um, digital therapeutics. There are kind of digital wellness, digital mental health, and digital therapeutic interventions that, that can tackle any mental disorder you can think of. There are digital therapeutics um, somewhere along that spectrum trying to do that. One thing I'll add, just I think underpinning that is, you know, of course, with the pandemic, everything everyone's been going through, there's, you know, greater incidence of mental health issues, greater need. And even before that, the demand for mental health support was greater than the supply of providers, um, of mental health specialists. And the model of seeing a therapist one-on-one -on -one just because of that supply-demand mismatch isn't going to work. And I think that's really where technology comes in. Technology really makes it viable to create more accessible care on a wider scale. And so to Acacia's point, I think that's why we're in a really exciting way seeing all types of solutions emerge, whether it's, you know, an asynchronous opportunity to connect with a therapist over text or to have kind of dynamic content in an app that's curated for you. Or in those cases where it is most beneficial, being able to connect with a, with a therapist or another provider one-on-one -on -one in a kind of teletherapy type of opportunity. So I think for us and kind of why you see a lot of investment in this space right now is kind of this belief that, you know, underpinning the solution is the ability of tech to kind of scale that relationship between patient and, and therapist or provider and, and like create some new care models that are using technology in really interesting ways. I think if I can add to that, I think uh, an interesting area is, is to what you said there, Megan, is the whole digital biomarker space. 
So I think a lot of the things that we're seeing in a lot of these digital applications are using digital biomarker technology, such as eye tracking and natural language processing, where they can actually detect mental health needs in advance, allowing a healthcare professional to make a, an intervention remotely in advance. And I think there's some really, really interesting technologies out there that, that are doing this. So even by the way you tap or swipe uh, your, your phone, uh, you can actually start to uh, get some, the technology can actually start to get some readings in terms of what level of mental, is your mental health state at that stage. You know, eye tracking technology is another interesting one where you can start to predict uh, cognitive decline. And I think that there's some very, very, very interesting uh, synergies going on now where a lot of these uh, digital therapeutic uh, startups are starting to use digital biomarker technologies to create these more effective and more efficient uh, ways of actually delivering uh, mental health care. And I also think COVID to some extent plays into all of this, right? We are not a, a mental health company, albeit, you know, a lot of autoimmune patients are struggling from depression and anxiety as a result of their diagnosis patterns. But one of the things that we're seeing with the COVID long hauler population is that the brain fog and the the sort of lack of control over their own mental space actually has played a much larger role in their suffering uh, than anything else. And I think what we are seeing is that a lot of the COVID long haulers were suffering pre-getting COVID and, and becoming a COVID long hauler, but that they're really seeing the benefits of getting treatment. So I think we are in a, in a societal space where a lot of people weren't getting treatments, even for severe uh, issues. Thank you, guys. I'm thankful that you brought up this link between digital therapeutics and also how that can come into the real world and how these companies are getting data from the body and then treating that with a digital therapeutic. So that's very good. We actually do have a whole separate ep episode on digital therapeutics. It's episode five, if anybody wants to go and check that out. But my next question, we are going to go in this direction. And Keisha, I'm probably going to throw it back to you. So first, I'm just going to give the definition of digital therapeutics that's come from the Digital Therapeutics Alliance. It says digital therapeutics or DTX deliver medical interventions directly to patients using evidence-based clinically evaluated software to treat, manage, and prevent a broad spectrum of diseases and disorders. So my first question, and I'm going to go straight back to you, Acacia, is how are these being used to treat mental health? I can break that down a little bit more too, because, you know, for me, I'm always thinking about it in terms of regulatory category, because like what was just described there is kind of two completely different regulatory categories sort of smushed together. So when you talk about management of a mental disorder, you're talking about something different from an FDA standpoint from treating. And so, you know, there are digital therapeutics companies that do nothing but treat or nothing but manage or both, but they're, um, they're very different. So, you know, from a treatment perspective, we're kind of looking at with or with without a prescription, but mostly I think in the mental health space, you're looking at with a prescription of some kind, like a, a doctor has to talk to the patient and de determine that they would benefit and then, you know, suggest that they do it. So they may authorize it or prescribe it. And so, you know, you, you see examples like this, you know, a uh, pair has Somrist and, uh, you know, Reset O as examples or Achille has um, Endeavor. And these are things where a person has to be diagnosed with the thing and it has to be identified as being, you know, they're in, they're in the right group of people to get it. And there's kind of all these restrictions. It's prescribed and they use it and it's considered treatment. And the FDA is sort of, you know, rubber stamped that these are things that, um, that can be prescribed. But there's a whole other category and that's kind of under this 
enforcement discretion category where FDA has sort of said in a, in a perfect world, we would go through all these too, but there are too many and they're low risk. And uh, so instead, what we're going to say is, you know, follow the best practices and, um, you know, we'll will let these things exist. And so those can make, um, you know, I don't want to say weaker claims, but they can make, um, you know, less pointed claims of things like management. So a person might be, um, you know, getting advice on how to kind of manage an ongoing condition, which is very different from I'm going to treat that condition. And so the the types of things you can do in apps like that, it's pretty flexible as long as you're not saying that you're doing treatment. But for example, if we're talking about kind of managing uh, managing symptoms of depression and anxiety, and then we have to think about how that's different from treating symptoms of depression and anxiety, <laughs> it's not as easy as it as it might seem on the surface, but those are the two broad categories there. And you can do a lot in that enforcement discretion category. You can be targeting mental illness without saying the word treatment. There's a lot you can do. I'll give an example that I think is interesting from our portfolio, definitely falls into more of like the the management and care coordination aspect of this, as opposed to being a therapeutic, but it's a relatively early stage company called Marigold. And you know, they're, you know, they, they initially were focused on supporting people with substance use disorder who may have been in an inpatient or outpatient therapy. And, you know, they, they may want to stay connected to a care manager and the care manager may want that too. But given the size of panel of patient, that's oftentimes really difficult to do in a one-on-one fashion. And so they essentially built a coordination tool for once these patients are discharged for them to be able to be a part of a community, which can be a really powerful healing mechanism for people. And they're able to talk to others who are also managing through a substance use disorder issue and chat with them. And there's kind of an algorithm that is looking and running a sentiment analysis to flag anything that might be indicative of a relapse or, you know, just a bad situation that someone might be in or getting into. And so what that algorithm does is it makes it so that the care manager doesn't have to constantly be looking through this chat function to sort through like who needs my help, who doesn't need my help. The algorithm there is to kind of lift that weight off of the care manager, pull up the red flag when needed to say, you know, if I'm the care manager, hey, Megan, it's really important for you to check in on this person. It sounds like they may have, you know, suicidal ideation or something else that's indicative of them going down a path that that we can pull them back from and support them on. And so the care managers really love that. And I love the idea of digital health really expand, not at all replacing the provider or the care manager, but equipping them with the tools to intervene more proactively with the patients who need it most in real time. Yeah, I can add to that just one more concrete example, because I know I didn't get that concrete before. But, um, you know, if you if you identify somebody with a chronic condition that is exacerbated by having some mental health symptoms, you might reduce mental health symptoms. So give them a mental health intervention. You're not trying to treat their, you know, MS or whatever chronic condition, right? You're trying to reduce depressive symptoms, which makes them less likely to follow their MS treatment plan, less likely to take their medication, right? So you're, you're trying to kind of improve quality of life, which ultimately could impact the illness, but it's not the same as treating it, right? I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to make it so they don't have MS anymore. I'm trying to make them healthier around their MS. So that's another, it's a different example, but it's a way that you're trying to manage life with a condition um, using a digital therapeutic. I think there are, you know, making that connection between mental health and a chronic condition, and you can see a lot of these digital therapeutics, you know, the idea of giving your patient a sense of control 
over that condition, that sense of mastery can be very, very rewarding from a, from a mental health perspective, right? It can create positive feelings, other things like achievement, right? So the fact that, you know, you, you set some goals and then you actually fulfill those goals after a period of time, again, it's something that can, can relieve those symptoms related to, to anxiety and depression of having that chronic condition. You know, esteem as well, making your, you know, that idea of giving yourself a sense of esteem, even though you have a chronic condition. You know, I've seen great examples where using communities, the application will reassure you that you're not the only one experiencing a certain symptom, right? And then being able to give you, put yourself in context of that so you understand it. And that's a great example of how detect companies are using data and aggregating that data to create information for the patient that is going to create a lot of value. Yeah. And to build on that, I, I believe that's the reason why I'm here, right? Because we, we don't necessarily run a mental health company, but we, as a part of the process of empowering patients to take back their health, oftentimes see the, you know, that the impact on, on their mental health issues are pretty significant. And I think the other side of what Acacia just said is that, you know, bringing the reversal of the chronic disease to the forefront um, in today's world also means that there is a, a gut-brain causality that actually has a larger impact than we probably understood very recently. So we can see in our data that the, the clientele that comes through that has anxiety, they're more likely to have certain food triggers than the ones that have depression. And so we can actually already in the symptomology when people come in through the door, start understanding and making causalities between their triggers and the, the symptoms that they're experiencing. And it's it's a very powerful thing to see that as people are reclaiming their health, they're also normalizing in terms of mental health. So, Meta, I'm actually going to have to jump right back to you because this is one of, I believe, the most engaging and interesting questions we're going to cover today. I think if, if a new approach to healthcare, a, a systematic approach versus a linear approach, where actually one part of your body can impact a different part of your body, which I think is, is a newer, much more interesting way of like approaching healthcare. So my question back to you, and you just mentioned this now, is how can your gut impact your mental health? In oh so many ways, but to give you just a very concrete example is, you know, we've, we've seen people come through where, you know, they have, let's say, esophagus closures, they have psoriasis, they also have anxiety and panic attacks. And they've typically spent most of their wake hours focused on, on the mental issues because that's what's, what's frightening most people, right? So after a decade with psychiatrists and psychopharmaca, they might end up at our doorstep, not for the mental issues, but for the autoimmune underlying issue. And as a part of looking at the data through the processes that we're running, we typically see causalities. So in the example here, we had a 43-year-old male who was experiencing this set of symptoms. And within four weeks of being in our program, we could tell him that actually his panic attacks were physically induced. So whenever he would have an esophagus closure, he would 11.76 to 11.83. So that's like... 11 hours after the fact, he would have a panic attack. And if he had the esophagus closures during the day, he would wake up in the middle of the night with his panic attacks. And the window was less than four minutes. So it was such a precise window that we believed that to be the causality. And so in his case, we urged him to 
essentially refocus on the esophagus, we were able to identify what triggered his esophagus closures. And through a dietary intervention, we were able to eliminate that issue. And within six days of not having his esophagus close up, he also saw a marked decline in his anxiety. And he didn't have any panic attacks after that fact. So this is one of those typical gut-brain relations where it's, it's a physical ailment that triggers something. And I don't think it's something that we talk a lot about today. It's sort of like the, the next generation of, of mental health. But I do think that we are going to, in the coming years, as data is going to paint a much clearer picture, we're going to see pathways and causalities that are unknown to us today. And it's going to make it very exciting because I think we are just on sort of like the doorstep of understanding the human body. And it's a pretty beautiful machine if optimized correctly. That highlights for me the importance of being able to assess patients and give them the right thing. Because, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this. There's this, uh, this figure my graduate advisor always talked about, uh, the 65% barrier that any therapy that you give to a person or treatment or medication, 65% of people respond to it roughly, right, in, in depression. And that highlights that, you know, even the, the therapies that work the best still aren't working for everybody. And it's important to be thinking about, you know, and plausibility is a huge part of this, at least, you know, in my world, if I pre present something to somebody and they don't think it's plausible, they're not going to do it. And so there's that need for precision assignment of tasks or, you know, activities to people it, it, on my side too, on a completely different part of the spectrum <laughs> of what we're even talking about that, uh, you know, you can't just do a one size fits all approach. You've got to see what's going to work for a particular person. So I love that. I mean, it's, it's of course, much more fine-grained on my me, but, you know, just the idea that we can't stamp something and say, this is what works, right? Because you've got different things going on for different people. I'm totally aligned with Acacia on this. And, and the reality is that we are coming from a space of one size fits most to one size fits one. And it's going to be fascinating to see that unravel because we're going to learn so much in the process. I also think it it creates this neat dynamic where patients who wouldn't have necessarily have sought out care for a mental health issue or even had a diagnosis are introduced to these, to these supports and practices and therapy earlier on in their journey. Because, you know, they're coming to Miami because, you know, they're, they're having gut issues or, you know, they're responding to a, a physical ailment. And we see that, you know, with, you know, with a company like an Omada where someone, you know, you're, you're trying to, get your diabetes under control. But the reason that Omana has now integrated behavioral health into that is because it plays such a role as we've been talking about in the ability of that person to, to, you know, get to a place where they want to be and effectively manage that, that disease and overcome some of the mental barriers that might be in place. And so I really love that, you know, given that combination, the holistic nature of what you guys are describing that a lot more people are going to be introduced to these things earlier than, the, than they would have probably sought it out as an individual. And I also think of it as, as sort of like the next era, right? Because Omada, our CTO is actually co-founder of Omada. And we traditionally looked at diabetes through this lens of known causality, BMI, insulin, A1C, and so on. But it was still a translational from standard of care into technology. And I think this new frontier of healthcare, in particular in mental health, is going to be unknown causalities. And that's where data and technology and machines are exceptional, right? This is actually the sweet spot where we as human beings fall flat on our faces, 
But when we in Miami look at the individual, we take in all of these data points, but we are unraveling unknown causalities. And that's interesting. And I think when it comes to, you know, Acacia's example of 65, it still leaves three, you know, one third on the table. And, you know, in autoimmunity, it's even worse. It's like the medication fails three out of four. So we, we, have, a, we have a healthcare system where we've based it on the median, but the reality is that those outliers can actually tell us a lot. And as we're lining up all of these end of one cases, all of a sudden the insights are going to get to tremendous value as an overall system. The future of healthcare. Now, there was a recent article in the New York Times that I think really struck a chord. The headline is, the other side of languishing is flourishing. Here's how to get there in case anybody wants to read it. The point of the article is that, is that basically everybody's getting more successful in their careers, but people, particularly after COVID-19, are feeling more lonely, disconnected, and unsatisfied. Can this challenge be solved with technology? I personally have a really big issue with lonely in the way that we describe lonely. Lonely is some, some old person where all their friends died. But I think a lot of people, particularly with mental health issues, they feel extremely lonely because they can't share it. It's not been widely accepted to share struggles. COVID has probably been the best thing that could have ever happened for the chronically ill population because all of a sudden it's been accepted to share things. Like I was, I was at my first trip last week and I was sitting next to a very acclaimed investment banker and he had suffered from COVID long haul. And he said to me, you won't believe what it feels like. And I said, I know. And he goes, no, you don't understand. I missed my plane twice. I was at the gate. And I was like, I know. But in the past, sharing your weaknesses like that in certain positions would have been a completely no-no. And I think today we have an openness around it. And I think that's going to be probably the biggest differentiator. Will technology solve for all of it? Probably not. Uh, but I do think it could be a leverage point. I do think that there's some power to the idea of no longer waiting until... I I had a colleague who used to call it a whack-a-mole approach. Like, let's wait until a person is severely depressed and in the hospital and then begin to treat them. Um, but people are suffering from sub-threshold depression, sometimes for years and years, just sitting and waiting for the right trigger to make them have major depressive disorder and then be more likely to have more major depressive disorder for the rest of their lives, right? So I'm very passionate about this idea that, you know, people aren't necessarily willing to make the effort to go in and see, you know, get treatment for something and health plans aren't necessarily willing to pay for it yet. That technology has this opportunity to meet people where they are and lower the threshold of effort that's needed to do something about depression and anxiety. And that's just where I live. So those are the examples I'll, I'll give, but mental illness symptoms that haven't reached the point where you would go through all that effort yet and dealing with them then. And I don't know how we're going to do that except with technology. There's the potential to prevent not the bulk of, but a, a significant portion of human suffering by intervening more early. There's no doubt that the preventative aspect of this, but I also think that, that that is why, to me, this aspect of having it be socially acceptable to even have the conversation, because for someone within their own framework to get to the idea that they need help might be very different than getting the notch. We've actually been extremely surprised that, so we, we run a COVID support program in, with Mount Sinai, and as a part of that program, we've actually seen 
a lot of the COVID long haulers have very severe and debilitating mental health issues, some of them even being suicidal. And it was surprising to me that those needs have not been taken care of. Well, you'll know that my company is called Happify, and that's not a mistake, right? We are a mental health company called Happify, in part because of this stigma that there is to kind of admitting that, you know, it's much easier to say, look, I want to work on my well-being, even if ultimately what you're doing is a more powerful, more robust thing. The mindset of what you're doing can make something more appealing. And I think, you know, you can kind of have this destigmatized approach when you're not tackling major depressive disorder and, you know, doing it in that context, you can you can frame it in a way that will make it make it less threatening. I think an interesting one here is is virtual assistants and what they're doing. So there's a, for example, there's an application called Wobot, right? So you're talking about the barrier to entry here. And I think the interesting thing about a virtual assistant, even though they're not that advanced at this stage and they will get they're not judgmental. And I think that you can still talk to the idea of talking to a distant voice, even though it's automated to give you some support, is a very effortless way of entering entering into this whole mental health care space. And I think that that whole space around how a, a virtual assistant can provide mental health care is very, very interesting. We're seeing it, for example, with care companions, right, for the elderly who are suffering from loneliness. We know that right now there have been some studies in the US where, you know, the aging population, you know, love having the care companion, the virtual assistant, which is just running through you know, an Amazon Echo uh, right next to them. So there's some some really really interesting things around what's happening with with the virtual assistant space and and what that does is it's relieving some of the pressure that we're seeing on healthcare providers because you know as we discussed earlier on there just simply aren't enough uh, professionals to meet the demand and, and you know they're kind of the, the virtual assistants will kind of sit on that front line and elevate more uh, critical issues to the human healthcare providers, you know, where necessary. So that's a really interesting area as well. So Happify has a digital coach. It's the same, what you're describing, we call it a digital coach. And actually where that really comes in handy is with what Megan was describing, because one of the things a digital coach can do is monitor, right? You can look at the text that people are saying to this coach and you can use that to get a sense of where they're at, identify if they need additional care. So what the digital coach is really powerful for me at thinking about this kind of like spectrum approach all the way along severity is that it can help you figure out where people belong in terms of what where to direct them without having a human involved, which ends up being really important for scalability is it's, it's, it can be smart, right? It can take a look at the tone. It can be trained by therapists. Our, you know, we have a team of therapists. Right go back and, and say, ah, but you should have said it this way, or ah, but you should have flagged it when they said this. And that lets you have kind of all of the intelligence of a therapist um, in an automated way to make some of these, to flag some of the cases where an actual therapist needs to be paying attention. It's pretty cool. I also think it's important to recognize that, again, it's like, it's not a one size fits all. I was chatting with one of the lead data scientists to bring up Omada again, but they were saying how they, they did find that the relationship between the patient and their health coach was one of the biggest indicators of the patient's outcomes. The better the relationship, the better the patient said the relationship, the more likely they were to, you know, have better A1C and kind of other things that they're measuring for those patients. And so I, I do think it's really interesting to consider, you know, which at which point in the care journey or which patients are going to be better served by uh, kind of these virtual assistants that you all are talking about? And then when is it necessary to create that longstanding relationship with 
a person because that's really going to be the inflection point for the person. I don't know if that's going to be like if those differences we'll see it are generational or if it's going to be, you know, just just people that prefer Chris to your point to be able to talk to, you know, they're they're more willing to be open with not a person versus someone who's like, no, I, I it's really important to me that I'm building that longstanding relationship. I think there's enough demand that there's room for all types of these models. It's it's not like either or. I think it's it's both and. So we do have a VC in the house, Megan of Rock Health. We're talking about a billion dollars being pumped into mental health startups 2019. We reached 1.3 billion by Q3 of 20, but I assume in the last two quarters, we've seen even more than that. Megan, why is this happening? For everything we've been talking about, <laughs> there's so much potential here. I mean, those those numbers are really big. I think one is that there's just, even outside of healthcare, there is more dry powder, more capital in the markets than ever before. So it just makes sense that like rising tide lifts all boats. You're seeing more money go to healthcare, more money go to every sector within digital health, including mental health. But I think that to everything we've talked about, the pandemic really put this fine point on the need for these services and the opportunity for technology to deliver them, not just at scale, but at a distance. Like we all went through this period where we had to be treated from home for most of the things that we were dealing with. We actually did a survey of 8,000 US consumers last year in the fall timeframe. So it was kind of between the, you know, I'm, I'm kind of mixing my waves of the pandemic, but I think it was between the first and the second wave. And, you know, we asked people, are you seeking telemedicine out? Are you satisfied with that service? People were very, very satisfied, more so than we've seen in the past. And you might say, well, Megan, of, of course, if your alternative is not getting care or going to a place where you, you feel you might catch a, a, you know, a virus, then of course you're going to be satisfied with that alternative. But I think we are going to see a, a shift. I, saw, I was looking at it, it was a really small end, but one kind of mental health practitioner group did a short survey of their therapist to say, like, how have you enjoyed the telemental health experience? And they really adapted to it well. They said that they actually would want a portion of their practice to maintain virtual visits. And that's really interesting because if you're seeing relatively quick adoption and satisfaction on the patient and the provider side, I think you're going to see some of these behaviors sustain long after the pandemic. And the other thing is, I think that there's business model opportunity. Meta, you brought up that, you know, we've kind of destigmatized, you know, asking for and receiving mental health care. I think we've also kind of destigmatized it from a business model perspective with employers. Employers are like very much looking into providing these solutions to their employees. And I think before as investors, you might have been skeptical a few years ago, like, oh, is an employee really going to want to access something that's offered by their employer? for fear that they might find out that information, even if there are firewalls in place, like there's just stigma associated. I think that's really been lifted. And we've seen a lot of opportunity with that particular business model in terms of kind of employer funded, employer sponsored solutions. And so I think that combination of like seeing the supply demand mismatch, seeing the shift in consumer and provider behavior, as well as some of these business model channels opening up, not to mention some some things kind of moving through the FDA regulatory process more quickly. Acacia alluded to some of those solutions earlier. All of those things are combining to make this a really ripe area for venture investment. So they're big numbers, but I'm not that surprised. 
I would say, too, that, you know, I've noticed from our side that, yes, there is definitely more interest from employers, but employers are also moving so much more quickly. You know, it used to be this glacial process where they weren't 100% sure they wanted to do it. And there was like, I don't know, it just it took months and months and months. And now it's like, they're just, we need this now. And it goes, you know, there's just much more potential, I think, than there was a year ago for just explosive growth for a company that might not have much going on to suddenly get a, a variety of contracts because there's just a ton of demand and it move, it's moving quickly, which I think is a, it's, it's, anybody who's been in the B2B space for a few years is shocked by this. It makes sense, but it's, uh, it's not how it used to be. Okay. So somebody has an existing like challenge or condition and then the, their mental health is impacted by that. How can technologies that we've been discussing already help address those mental health challenges that are connected with their initial condition. And Chris maybe also can share more about how he was talking about this earlier, I believe. So in our case, we have the majority of all the clients that we have coming through are suffering from some sort of mental aspect as a result of being a chronic patient, which makes sense, right? You are, you're paving like with autoimmune disease, it's a long journey. It takes five to seven years to get diagnosed. And it's predominantly women, 78% women, that are being told it's all in their head. That in it of itself, I went through it in my early 20s, it, it almost robs you for your intuition. And so that has a mental impact. Then you go on to getting a diagnosis. Now you have high hopes. You might go through the whole uh, spectrum to get to medication. And as mentioned earlier, it fails three out of four, meaning that's also trial and error. So it's a lo lonely and long road that you're going on. And so the, the mental impact of that is, is significant. And so what actually has been interesting is that in the early days of Miami, we focused a lot on the mental aspects. We don't as much now because what we found is that if you can empower patients, to Chris's point earlier, to take back control, once people are in the driver's seat and their, and their body functionality has recalibrated, you will see those mental health issues lift. And it's almost miraculous because it feels like you have a client come through the door with these enormous issues and you're sort of like trying to stack them to figure out where to start. And then being able to sort of put that in the back seat because of the physiological improvements having such a big impact has actually been the primary driver of our success in that field. And I think one of the things that digital technology is going to do when it comes to control is it helps people to understand the behavior of their condition and it, you'll be able to, it'll visualize or it'll map triggers to symptoms. And then, you know, as you start to actively or passively track your condition over a period of time, so for example, you track your di dietary intake every day and then you understand how that affects your symptoms, that's how you, you start to feel that sense of control. So if you get a flare-up, you can understand what's actually caused that flare-up. And I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of really, really, exciting work being done in these digital therapeutic applications right now where design is being uh, utilized to the max to really create these really clear, crystal clear, easy to understand visualizations. People can understand those behaviors. And, I, and, and to Megan's point earlier, I think all of what this will give us is a preventative model that goes beyond diabetes and cardiovascular. I think we're going to see preventative models in all spaces because the reality is that once we can start deriving data from the world around us, then the world starts looking quite different. If you're looking at the specifics of an individual where 
the more depressed they get, the higher their TV consumption. Well, today we know that. We can actually warn that person and say, you know what? You have, over the last couple of weeks, been on a slippery slope. And even that intervention, even as a small ping almost from a technology point of view, is enough to be a wake-up call, right? And then you can actually start readjusting before you, to Acacia point earlier, combust. The game of whack-a-mole will not be played for as long as it was in the past. And I think that's the, the place where technology gets super, super powerful. Well, and it's more than even because I, you know, we have been, we're just talking about the, the whack-a-mole kind of phenomenon from uh, identifying disease incidents, but it can also be a day-to-day thing, right? One of the greatest challenges when I was training as a therapist, right, one of the greatest challenges is you'll talk about some technique they're going to try out during the next week, and then they come back and they don't even remember what the technique is, let alone did they try it. It's just implementing something in somebody's everyday life is a really far stretch from having a one-on-one conversation about it. And technology really has this capacity to not just teach people things, you know, at home or remotely or, you know, at a convenient time, but to also sense when they need it and prompt them to use it at the right time. So like, I will just give a specific example. You know, we have a, um, we have a game in our core product that in, in the lab reduces stress reactivity. Like if you get stressed out, it makes it so that you can recover more quickly. So if we can sense when a person is stressed, we can prompt them to use that game and, uh, you know, reduce their, their stress reactivity, right? So, but we have to know that about them. You have to be gathering the right kind of data that you can make inferences like that and not wait until they're so stressed out that it's this huge thing instead of just going one situation at a time, helping them apply skills when they need them. I also fundamentally think that that's one of the reasons why Headspace is so you know, elaborate and, and such a huge success because to a large extent, even though on the surface it's a meditation app, it's actually doing exactly that, right? It's nipping something in the butt. Right. It's helping you understand when you need it so that you don't need to remember yourself. It's a new skill. How would you ever remember, right? You wouldn't. It's important to have tools that can kind of prompt you in the moment. And on that note, we're going to finish off with a question we ask every guest on this show, and that is, what is the application of mental health tech that you are most excited about over the next five to 10 years? I can start just because I think we've alluded to it, but haven't said it explicitly yet, which is we've talked about, you know, the ability to use data to better understand which treatment is right for which person. And so many of the clinical trials, not to mention providers in this space, have been really dependent on like a pretty homogenous group of patients and a relatively homogenous group of providers who don't necessarily represent marginalized communities, people of color, people going through different circumstances in life, traumatic events, pregnancy, et cetera. And so I'm really excited for the precision aspect of being able to best understand for, you know, a person in a particular population or for a particular individual, really what is that appropriate journey for them? What are the right nudges? What's the right person for them to connect with? What is, you know, if they need to be on a medication, what is the right management of that look like for them? I just think we're, it's almost silly to say, but we all have so much uniqueness, especially when it comes to our brains and how we manifest anxiety and depression and all of these things. And so just the the precision around that, especially for communities that I think have been underrepresented in the space is, is definitely exciting to me. No, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think that's spot on, Megan. 
I think one of the things that we have focused a lot around, and and of course, largely because the COVID long haul population at the moment, but also because of the, the one of the main complaints for the autoimmune population is brain fog. And when people talk about brain fog, it's sort of like, well, what is that extent? Like how much does that actually impact somebody? But we have people who can't remember the names of their husbands at certain times of day. So it's, it's, it's a relatively significant impact. And if you think of the employer space, you know, the impact on productivity, if your population is fatigued and brain fogged, is beyond anything else. They could, they could, they could have broken legs, broken arms. It doesn't matter. But if their brains are slowing down to the point where they can't even, you know, figure out normal things. Um, and so one of the things that we realized as a company was that, you know, any technology company makes psychological profiles, you, you, you map things up and you use data to sort of get to understand people. And we had bucketed people into motivational areas as well. And one of the things that we realized was that we had actually completely missed the boat on our own population in the sense that some of the non-compliance that we saw was actually just brain fog. So in our case, we are now monitoring so that when people are coming into the program, we are taking into account how brain fog they are. And that are things that you can't ask people. It's very hard to ask somebody, how brain fogged are you? Because either they're going to be like completely over projecting or under projecting. So for us to get digital ways of measuring baseline and, and, and get that understanding has been hugely important. And I do think that that will, to Megan's point, that precision is going to go way beyond what we even can comprehend today. Yeah, I think all of that, you know, I think mine, I have sort of, you know, been chipping away at this treatment for my whole career. So like, for me, this is, you know, I see that within the next five years, we might actually start to make some real progress. I've been operating in the more kind of like wellness and uh, prevention space for a long time. But with the the advent of prescription digital therapeutics, there's such a potential opportunity to solve this issue where like therapists are great, but there aren't enough of them and not everybody will go to one. And, you know, two thirds of people who need treatment aren't getting it. And I really see technology as being a way to get there. I don't think we're there yet in the sense that even if we had, you know, approved digital therapeutics, there's so much more to do in terms of the things we discussed today about kind of offering techniques to people when they need them, not teaching them like a course and then hoping they'll apply it. You know, getting closer and closer to that is going to be really important. And I think that there isn't as much of a, you know, there's a whole research discipline about intervention optimization and testing, you know, a hundred different variants and seeing like what works. And uh, I want to see more of that in digital therapeutics. Like now that we've kind of gotten past these first hurdles of just like, can we get something that works? Let's get into like, are people using it as much as they're supposed to? What percentage of people are using it as much as they're supposed to? And how can we get to a point where everyone's using it the way that they're supposed to? That's going to take time. But if we can get there, we might get to, you know, a third of people not getting treatment they need instead of two thirds or, you know, even better than that, really making a dent in this huge percentage of the population with untreated mental illness, like keeps me awake at night <laughs> to me. Like, I, I think we can get closer in five years and I hope I'll get to see that. I think we, we've talked about so many exciting things. There are so many interesting, exciting technologies that I think are fundamentally really interesting. But I think, you know, as Megas said, precision medicine population health management, these are ultimately the end game, right? This is where we want to be, where we can make more effective interventions, you know, more effective delivery of, of healthcare solutions. But I think what is 
What's really interesting right now is how digital therapeutics is becoming the enabler of that, whereby we're starting to see these digital tools being put in the hands of patients. And they are ultimately the means by which the data that is needed to drive these these uh, these precision medicine decisions is going to be is going to be aggregated and so as we see this grow we'll, we'll start to see that effect it's going to have on more effective delivery of of mental health care services okay so i feel like uh, my mind has been truly exposed to the power of how technology is going to transform mental health specifically chris i really enjoyed you bringing to the forefront the how mental health technology can increase people's sense of control uh, or their mastery almost over their condition which can relieve some of these issues i enjoyed that uh, megan thank you for bringing data from the ground of covid19 to us and sharing those insights met your highlighting the gut to mental health connection and also how technology can impact healthcare more generally and then occasionally the clarity around the digital therapeutics definition measurement versus management guys i want to thank you all for coming on and being so generous with your time and your wisdom i'm sure the audience are going to be walking away illuminated thank you so much thank you thank you very much how was that i hope we illuminated the topic for you and i'm pretty sure that we did it was an awesome discussion with some incredibly interesting and original thinkers in the space as always please head to apple Podcasts and leave an honest rating or review you can just search for shine star in apple Podcasts or in any other podcast app i want to thank you chris megan acacia and meta and finally i want to thank you for listening